We are live. Happy New Year's. Brand new season four, Coffee with the Johns, episode one. What is going on, everybody? Glad you can join us. We got so much going on in the real estate market right now. It's so been much. it's been nuts. It's been crazy. The market has shifted so damn fast. You know, usually when, especially you and I, we've studied real estate cycles. We study the economy. Like, it, it's fun. And you see it like, oh, it's a trend. You know, it started trending down. But this, like, especially in San Antonio, what are the months of inventory right now? Uh, they actually fell. Uh, they're down only at 4.2. They were 4.8. They were at 4.8 and they dropped to 4.2. Yeah, but at the beginning of last year, we were at under a month of inventory and it shot up to damn near almost what, five months? Yeah, 4.8 last in November and then November. It dropped, or December and then it dropped to 4.2. So I'm curious what it's going to do because that's tri typical. You get a little buying, buying season uh, there in December. Um, so it's not a shock that inventory did fall again. I was actually kind of surprised. I figured, man, the way these things are going, it might actually rise again uh when it typically doesn't but it started to act like the normal market does where median sales price had a bump uh, appreciation had a bump and uh inventory fell so mm. and i was talking to a realtor the other day and uh, she's a buyer's agent and she said it's like well i mean with these interest rates falling now it's like buyers are starting to come out i'm getting a lot more calls for buyers wanting to go look for houses now that uh rates have fallen back down to like a more reasonable level like oh, that's great they're down like this. I don't know what they're at, but she says, that, yeah, with the rates dropping and falling uh, and you can look the 10 year treasury. I mean, it peaked and it's fallen down to low threes. Well, now. I think a uh, mortgage rate, I was looking at it yesterday and the uh, 30 year on on Freddie Mac site, it's like 6.13, I think. Um, so it's uh, I mean, it's not the ideal, but yeah, it, it's uh, at least it seems like for right now, it's stabled off a little bit. Yeah. And, you know, that that's kind of what we've been seeing right now in the market, especially in the investment market, is the fear, right? There's so much fear. So I wanted to start with this, um, with this one question. So I got somebody that messaged me in the in our community app. And for those of you that are not on there, you want to text uh, YouTube to 210-794-9898. And you can text us anytime, 100% free for now. Um, and we'll, you know, we'll always respond to whatever questions you guys have, but they asked me this question and I've been seeing it from a lot of other investors. They're thinking right now is a good time to sit on the sidelines and wait to see what the market is going to do. What are your thoughts on that? It really, I think it, it depends on your position and where you're at and what you need to do. Um, cause I mean, even for us, we've kind of taken a little bit of a side it's not, I wouldn't say we're sidelining anything, but we're just not going as like hard and heavy of just doing a bunch of experimental marketing and stuff like that. But I know people on all sides. I know people that are going balls to the wall. There's like, oh man, I'm not letting this do this. I'm going to keep going hard and just keep going far. Or like, I'm going strong just like I was before. Yeah. But I know people that have completely pulled out and I know everybody in between. So it, it really, I think it depends on your personal situation and your beliefs and what it is that you want to do for your goals. Um, so for us, we've kind of not, not sidelined, but we haven't, we aren't going as hard as we were six months ago. It's kind of like, ah, we're just going to tighten up and take to these, the tried and true, uh, marketing stuff, preserve cash, preserve dry powder and focus on the stuff that we, uh, do have and working on some internal systems. So what I've been telling them is, is more along the lines of, look, the market is choppy right now. And, and, and it brings me back to conversations we've had with investors back in 2017, 
back in 2020 when they're like, oh, this market is going to tank. Something crazy is going to happen. I'm going to sit on the sidelines. And then what ends up happening is opportunities pass you by. I'm not saying you should be investing right now, but you shouldn't be on the sidelines either. You should still be watching for sure. Just to see like, hey, what is happening? Because I mean, I I looked at a wholesale deal yesterday and I'm like, nope, still too many crappy and i got it from like two different people and this guy called me he goes hey i got this deal that meets your criteria like i'll send it over and he sent it to me and he's like oh it's it only needs 40 grand at work 180 it's twenty thousand dollars less than the list price and uh it's worth 295 and i just kind of looked at him like converse for 300 for like a 1500 square foot house i'm like <laughs> i'm just curious like right off the head i'm like red light nope sorry but I, I looked at it and like i just the zillow estimate was like 240 I was like, Zillow is, and it's like a 1987 build. It's like, Zillow is not that far off a 1987 build. It's like, dude, I mean, maybe you might get 250 out of it. Uh, Zillow's off a little bit like that. Yeah. But it's like, it's not off by <laughs> 20%. And he's like, yeah, but you're getting it for 180. I was like, yeah, plus 40 grand in rehab. That puts you at 220. I list it for 240. Say 250. It's $30,000, $15,000 in closing costs. And then I have my holding costs. It's like, there's no meat left on that bone worth that risk of 40 grand. Right. It's like, I might take that thing on. If it's like, I buy it, I only got to do some paint and carpet and then do it. You're talking five, 10 grand. It's like, but not a $40,000 rehab. I mean, that's, that's way too much renovation for something like that. It's like, there's like, there's just no comps there. Yeah. And well, and I mean, we've seen it in a property that we recently bought. You look at the sold comps for the last two to three months and they were in the low 300s. But then you're looking at the actives right now, and they're in the high 280s. You know, so it's like, yeah, the comps show low 300s. But what's active right now, what's on the market right now is much lower than that. So as an investor, you got to look at, and that's something that we've been doing, uh, one of the shifts that we made, is the way we run our comparables. We're not just looking at solds anymore. We're looking at what's on the market right now competing. Because what's active, we're seeing properties that are active and they're sitting longer. They're yep. doing price drops. And those are the ones you're going to be competing with. So while before you you always ran comps and you're like, okay, what are all the solds? Right now we're looking at the solds kind of like, okay, yeah, those are sold. But that was a month ago. And this property is just as good as that one. And it's being listed for 10, 15 grand less. So as an investor, you got to take that into account because it's like, by the time I sell, is it going to be another 10, 15 grand less? Yeah. Right? So, but going back to the main topic was with people trying to sit on the sidelines, I don't think it's ever a good idea. You know, I think you need to be attending any meetups that are local to your area, be involved in whatever, you know, even getting deals, even if you're not going to buy them, but go looking at them, mm -hmm. you know, keep your eye on the market, see when the market is shifting, because what ends up happening and in my opinion, what ends up happening is that you will, by the time you realize what the market ended up doing, you're late, right? Because it's like, I'm going to wait to see what the market's going to do. Well, if you step out, by the time you realize what the market is doing, you're, you're already too late in the market. You know, now you're trying to catch up with everybody else that's in the market. So, it, you know, then you hear the same complaints. It's like, I can't get good deals. I can't find. It's like, yeah, you've been out of the market too long. You weren't able to ride the wave to understand what were the shifts in the market. Yeah. So, so yeah, I mean, it's, uh, I don't know. As far as that goes, our opinion, it seems to be that you agree is it's not the right time. It's never the right time to be sitting on the market. 
uh, to to be sitting on the sidelines. So with that, how do you see this market? Man. <laughs> Ooh. Uh, gotcha. Well, it's just like the market's still moving. Houses are still selling. They're not just not selling for over asking prices and stuff like that. You, the, the the crummy rehabs that people were doing in the last two years that were just like, hey, you just slap some paint on it. And like, uh, you just, the cabinet's kind of janky. Let's just kind of put a screw in it and call it good. But it's still obvious that it's just been a band-aided and things like that. Like you're not getting away with selling those kind of renovations anymore. Because there's much more inventory of people that were homeowners that took much better care of their properties than some of the crappy rehabs that people are doing. Mm. That is for sure. And those are ones that are seen. Because I went and looked at a house uh, the other day. Um, Molly and I were just kind of out looking around. I was like, oh, man, this acre lot over here in Castle Hills. It looked renovated. Let's go just go check it out for the fun of it. And you walked in, and I was just like, God. Like, this is a half a million dollar house. And this is like builder-grade minus like yeah. this was not good like the thresholds were missing the paint didn't get done all the way the cabinets this is one that bugged the hell out of you i know so instead <laughs> of putting the cabinets in the bottom like corner mm-hmm. they put them in the dead center of the doors and on the bottom cabinets so it's like you had to bend over further to grab that the cabinet to open it up and they were just like home depot style cabinets and stuff like that yeah and it was, and it was like the level one cheapest uh i know it's, it's called glacier white uh granite like we use it in all of our like eh, let's just do a basic 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 granite in this thing and it just like the quality wasn't there and like the doors were super cheap the handles were super cheap and it's like a half million dollar house and the agent calls me afterwards and she goes what do you think of the renovation and i was like just beat around the bush and i was like well i mean just i think the quality was quite there and the products to for a half million dollar house for my client and then she goes so it's kind of like it, it was cheap it was like I didn't want to use that word, but since you get it said it, yeah, it was that, a very. That's why you make a, a good. That's why you make a good real estate agent. You're like, so a, polite. <laughs> it was, it's a good old boy in me. Yeah, uh, you're, that's why you're the nice John. Yeah, it was just it was just a cheap renovation, and she knew it. And uh, she goes, "It's cheap." I was like, "Yeah, that's kind of the feedback I got from some other people." I was like, "Beautiful lot." I was like, "It's a really nice lot and a nice house." If and it has a lot of potential. He's like, but it was Not just at that price. No. And like they, they put all kinds of like uh rock pathways in there, which looked really cool in the pictures. But when you got there, they weren't the metal edging. It was like the rolled plastic one. So it just, uh, it waved all the way down. They had little like stakes in it. It's like, it just didn't look good. And I was like, man, it's one of those uh, things where I just want to do that little sticker. Like, well, you tried. And it's like, <laughs> I'm just going to keep watching this. And like, just watch like the prices fall. Cause like anybody that wants that kind of house for half a million bucks in that area. It's like, yeah, I'm going to go pay 600 for, it was like 540. I was like, I'm going to go pay 600 for something similar, like just down the street. Yeah. It's like, no. And much better quality. And much better quality and stuff yeah. like that. It just like, it just was not there. So those types of rehabs are not going to be selling anymore because there's choices now. Yeah. Inventory's out there. And you're, I think you're seeing the tail end of wholesalers being able to wholesale those types of properties at those margins that cause renovation, renovators and flip, new flippers to do that kind of stuff. They're finding those buyers that do that and be like, oh, I can just do a real uh, basic renovation update and we'll call it good. It's like, no, buyers have a specific eye, especially agents that are representing people at that level and look at a lot of houses. They'll walk in there and be like, ugh, for a half million dollar house, yeah, we're not even going to make it past the kitchen. Yeah. Like, let's just keep looking. I mean, recently, <clears throat> so about a week or so ago, we decided to start doing some one on one coaching with people. Um, and the first thing I tell them when we, we have our first coaching meeting and everything is 
we have students in New York that are investing in Georgia. We have students in St. Louis. We have students here in San Antonio. And the number one thing I tell them to start with is starting with what is the market doing where you want to invest? Because the biggest mistake I see with a lot of people is they try to make the market do what they can do, not necessarily they do what the market is wanting. Does that make sense? So let's say you're a person that, so let's say you're (laughs) like in San Antonio, you're a person that rehabs historic homes, Yeah. right? That's what you love to do. Historic homes in all those trendy neighborhoods in San Antonio took a massive hit. Oh, they have the highest inventory across the city. Ridiculous. I mean, some of those neighborhoods, they're having close two to years. 10. Yeah, oh, two, two years. years. I've seen stuff that say, yeah, they have like 18 to two, 18 months to 24 months. And the months price of drops have been tremendous. You're talking about 50 grand or more I've seen on some of these price drops. Oh, well, yeah, some of those houses, selling. like when you're talking a half million dollar house, uh, like 550, it's like going to 540. Isn't that big no. of a price drop? It's like, yeah, people no. are not buying it because of a ten thousand dollar difference no it would submit an offer at that price no it's like yeah it's like hey but you might just get a price change and show up like there so i yeah. i've been watching like the denver heights dignity areas and it's just like and you're seeing more and more inventory popping on the market and i think this that that those are the areas and they're the speculative ones it's the ones where you can make a lot of money in the upswings but you lose a lot of money in the downswings yeah and it's like and that's why like i put out that market report um I don't know, several years ago in bigger pockets is what I called like those areas. Like you can make great returns mm-hmm. with the right property in the right area, but it is a speculative bet because you don't know if the market's going to be there because you have to go so unique and above the average oh, yeah. in that area. You got to buy it at a low enough price and hope that the price increases enough that it knocks it out. Yeah. So, so what I'm telling them is precisely that if you're a buy and hold investor, uh, I mean, you're, you're a flipper that flips houses in a historic district and that happened, and you're saying, no, I'm still going to be flipping houses there. It's like your strategy needs to change drastically because now the months of inventory went way to hell up. Your buyer pool is drying up very, very quickly. So it's something that you got to start understanding and running the numbers and saying, look, what does this market want? What what does the market want? Does it want lower-end homes? Does it want more owner finance? Does it want more rentals? Because you got to cater to the market. You can't just try to do what it is that you want. And if it is, you got to find somewhere else where that is actually working. Yeah. So when they start doing the, the market research, we start seeing that's like, uh, like one of my students, he, he did the market research for one of the areas that he wanted to invest in. And once he did it and we're looking at the numbers, I was like, dude, that's a shitty area. He's like, oh, well, yeah, no wonder I'm not getting any deals. It's like, yeah, no, I'm not surprised either. Right, yeah. it, it, the the numbers are showing you it's not really the best area to be in. The median price was uh, of the homes sold; they're really, really high. They're over four hundred grand. I'm like, you're you're out of that affordability gap. And in the market shift that we're seeing right now with higher months of inventory, you need to be affordable in order to have higher inventory in order to be able to turn more properties. Yeah, where you're so, seeing where you're seeing the inventories kind of hold off is the. Um, median price point kind of stuff that's stuff that we've always focused on it's like hey we want to stay medium price and under and that's where you're seeing typically like the inventory is holding the strongest there and like your suburban areas like those hold are more recession proof than your inner city uh gentrifying heavy renovation unique style properties so that's that's for that's for sure yeah, so if you guys are interested uh, in seeing if you qualify to get some one-on-one coaching from us, 
Uh, just text the word coaching to 210-794-9898. And uh, we'll set up a call to to kind of explain what the whole process is. But it's very, it's very targeted. It's one-on-one. It's specific to you. We do weekly calls. We analyze your particular strategy, make any adjustments that are necessary. Um, there's a lot of hand-holding because, again, this is not the time to be sitting on the sidelines. There's a lot of opportunities coming up. There's going to be a lot of different things that are going to be able to get done. And those wholesalers and investors that got started, I heard somebody say this recently. Like, yeah, you know, I'm not, I'm not a new investor. I'm, I'm, I'm more or less a little bit more seasoned because I've been doing this since 2020. Like, <laughs> you haven't even begun to be seasoned if you started 2020. Yeah, like you figured out how to make money. Now you got to figure out how to make money in a normal market. Yeah. Like you know that I can sign a piece of paper and I can sell it to somebody else. Yeah. That's all you know you can do. But it's like when it's a little more tough and people are a little more, are a little smarter. And I like for me, like I'm, I'm fine with this market. And it's like, I'm actually like, I've gone back and forth where I don't want to see a recession because I know that what that means economically yeah. for people. It's still one of those like, ah, oh, I still want it to kind of get just a little bit worse for a little bit longer for right. real estate. Just like, I don't, I want the market to like shake out all these people that are like doing those things like that rehab that I was in. It's like, you shouldn't be renovating if this is the type of thing you're going to get put on put out. It's like, so now you're going to learn your lesson with that. You're going to hold it forever because it inventory is only going to rise at that price point in the winter time. So it's like, you're, it's just, somebody's going to buy it for the house, not the renovation and then probably go through and redo everything. Yeah. You're buying it for the lot. Cause it was a really nice lot. It was an acre of land inside the city. So, so, so that brings up another question then. In this market, with what you just said, who do you think is the type of investor you need to be, or what type of investor do you think will succeed in what this market is turning into? So you're going to have your, your, I mean, I think you just got to be flexible uh, and no, I mean, like wholesaling will always be there as long as you know how to find buyers. Um you're, you're going to find, I think people that are going to be successful are going to be your owner finance, lower end style people that are buy and hold, but like under a hundred and like 20 grand. And that's a very select group of people as like, you're not going to find very many like big landlords that specialize in that. Cause it's a very unique skill to be able to do that. And most of it's a blend at that level as, as owner finance and rental property. They kind of do a mix of the two. Um, I don't think you're going to find your B class rental landlord right now because we were analyzing one deal. It's like, I could sell this or like, what was it? I think I was running it on one of our properties to make numbers work for a, a normal or typical landlord. We had to sell a house that was basically turnkey ready. That's worth two thirty for like 120 grand. Mm. And it's like, who in the right mind would buy that thing for 120 when it's worth 230 as it sits? Right. It's like, I don't know about you, but I'd rather have $110,000 in my pocket versus just like, oh, this, this, this rental that cash flows two. it was going to only cash flow like 275. Like it wasn't anything great. It's like, my God, you're going to have over a hundred thousand dollars of equity sitting there and you're going to make 2,400 a year. Yeah. I was like, that's 2.4% return. I was like, go buy a freaking 10 year treasury for that. <laughs> <laughs> way less risk and way less money. Uh, like, <laughs> oh man, if, if, if your option with the real estate market is to go buy a treasury, you're, you're just yeah, you're not like, doing the right. I don't think you're going to find that person. So you're going to find that. And then the other person, so you're not going to find those. And it's going to be your, uh, I think an experience, I mean, flippers are still going to be there wanting to make money. 
because that's what it does at that price point. The only thing you can do is flip because mm-hmm. it was probably up until about three years ago, we were able to pay more as at, uh, wholesale rental numbers than somebody trying to flip. But once prices really started increasing in 2018 and 19, you couldn't sell to uh, landlords anymore. Yeah, because like, rents are taking too long to catch up. Too long, yeah, yeah, there's too much appreciation too quickly. Taxes are too high and rents aren't catching up. So and I kind of expect that trend to continue here in Texas just, just because of our property taxes, the way our yeah. system works with it, that I don't see very minimal, many rental properties like we're used to. I mean, people yeah. obviously still keep rental properties. They still buy something 20% down, and there's still going to be people that do that. Um, but I think for the investor that's looking for buy and hold, when you look at numbers, it's like, it's going to be easier just to flip something. Yeah. And I'll keep that cash for like, maybe then I'll go buy a brand new house uh, for a rental property. I'll just, I just have a bunch of cash I need to put it to work. I'm just going to go put a hundred grand down on this house and not really worry about the return. I'm looking for the cash flow and the preservation and appreciation protection at that point. And and we have some uh, good friend of ours that they do a lot of buy and hold, uh, Will and Veronica Pritchett. Yeah. And she said it very nice last, uh, last month. She's like, uh, we've been spoiled, you know, to as buy and hold investors that we were able to pick up a property, pretty much refinance, get all our money out and have a, a good property with equity and cash flow. Where now it's like, yeah, you, you can't really, you're going to have to leave money in the deal if you want a cash flow at this point, you know? And then like you mentioned taxes. A lot of money. Yeah. And you mentioned taxes and we've already been seeing how you, and you explained this last year too. Um, how taxes over the coming years are going to shoot up property taxes. Well, um, no, your mortgage payment is going to shoot up because of property taxes. Right. Like, it's not like taxes. I don't see taxes going up. I mean, year-over-year appreciation, January to January is 1.7%. So property taxes should really kind of level off. And if they don't for you, I would protest the hell out of them because like appreciation has basically stopped. It's down to 1, 1.5%. So that should hold even to last year. But- Last two years were huge jumps, and your mortgage isn't going to realize those escrow shortages until yeah next year, and that's or this year and next year is when I could see a lot of people really get squeezed for those mortgage. And insurance is another one that's gone up just like tremendously. I mean, stuff that I mean, I'm seeing insurance rates that are almost double what wow. we paid just a year ago. Like we used to pay like I don't know, thirteen, fourteen hundred dollars for a um builder's risk policy for a 12-month policy now we're paying 1100 for a six-month policy holy crap yeah so wow. i mean like rates have almost gone up by you're talking like 60 70 80 percent uh and that's something you say the other day like i went to renew my or my, i got a notice from uh, my auto insurance that a year ago my policy was 450 for six months then it went to 550 for six months and now it's at 830 for a six-month policy it's like it's a 60 percent jump from last renewal to this renewal like what the fuck yeah and uh they're like yeah i'm sorry like just policy rates have just really gone through the roof with uh the uh the cost of replacing vehicles and fixing vehicles getting parts and then i was talking to our insurance for builder's risk and he's like replacements costs have gone through the roof he's like american modern which is one of the biggest people carriers that he sells to like they won't even write policies in harris county anymore wow because of replacement costs and because of the risk of floods and damage from hurricanes that they're like Harris County is Houston. Yeah. And Houston. Yeah. So like, they just won't even write policies anymore. He's like, I can still get you policies, but you're not going to like your, I mean, you have to have yeah. them, but it's like, you're talking rates that are like three, 3,500, like 
per year. I mean, you're talking three times what they were two, three years ago. And the, and and it, so going back to the point is that like you start running all these numbers, and as a buy and hold investor, unless you're like a buy and hold investor that has deep pockets, and you're saying I'm buying these properties because I'm gonna sit on them for the next ten plus years or something like that, it's really hard for them. And at the numbers that work for them, you're already doing pretty much even better than flip numbers at that point. Is that what buy and hold investors need to buy them to still do what they used to do? You're you're at that point, I might as well flip the property, you know, because it's kind of like uh, one of our coaches, what he says, he's like, you'll be able to capture years of cash flow at once. You know what I mean? Instead of holding a property for, you know, three, four or five years, you get all that cash flow at once by just flipping the property. So it's those things that you got to understand. So as a wholesaler, if you're saying, you know, who am I going to be? Who are my buyers? Your fix and flip buyers are going to be there because right now for you to get what is considered a deal, you got to get it pretty much at flip numbers. And then the next buyer. Oh, I mean, even less than flip, flip numbers enough for buy and hold. That's what I'm talking that's about. What I'm like saying. it's like 70% off of that value. So like, like I say is 230. Uh, and then you got to get that at 70%. So you could pay like roughly 170 for that house. Yeah. Buy and hold, you'd be at 120. Like you got to get at 50,000 lower than a flip number. Right. You got to buy at 50% of value. And this is like, I, I'm not going to hold on to that. Well, I spoke to some of our buyers and when they gave me those numbers, I was like, if I get it that low, I'm not giving it to you now. <laughs> that makes no damn sense. If I get at 120 and I can flip that, I'm going to make a good a chunk of money if I do it myself. Like it makes no sense for me to bring it to you. So yeah. we had to even switch that up, you know, and, but now switching uh, to another buyer class, we talked about this last time is your owner finance buyers. So your owner finance buyers are what we see is going to be a great opportunity because this market is, we, we're not going to see, in my opinion, the massive appreciations that we've been seeing in the past years. So no, not that, by far not. Exactly. So I think at this point, that's when you want to be an owner finance buyer. Like being an owner finance buyer in the last couple of years, to me, it never made sense because it's like you're missing out on tremendous appreciations, right? That being said, now when the market is going to be more stagnant or it might go down, this is when you want to lock in those, you know, longer term mortgages and stuff like that. Get a get a, a owner finance buyer in there, um, you know, a, a what you would call like a rent to own, something like that. And you lock in the term, you don't have to deal with any maintenance, you don't have to deal with anything, and you have a nice note that you created for yourself. For sure. For sure. And I mean, like the owner finance piece is, and that's why you see that on the lower end too, is those ones typically don't appreciate as fast. Cause it's also when you look at it, 10% appreciation. The house is worth $90,000. Yeah. And it went up by nine grand. Now I have a house that's worth $250,000 and went up by 10%. It went up by $25,000. Okay. Now that's a big, that's big math difference. I mean, 10% is still 10%, but when you look at the like amount of dollars, it's like, Hey, that's why people owner finance lower in properties. And it's also like with property taxes and things like that and interest rates and stuff like you get a $225,000 house at 10% interest. And it's just like, your payment is ungodly yeah. high. So people don't owner finance at that price point. So it's not everyone's uh, like you hear the gurus coming around like, oh, my teach you how to buy houses, no money down. You can put a, a, somebody in it. And I hear people say, oh, can you own or finance? When we were trying to do our rental property thing uh, and that we sent out to some people, 
mm-hmm. and they're like, "Ooh, can we buy them to where we can owner finance them out?" I was like, "No." I was like, I, I, "I was like, I for what we want to sell them for." No, it, the math's not going to work out. I'll send you the information, but it's not going to work out for you. Yeah, so. yeah, and I mean, so owner finance, I think it's a great strategy. Um, what I find found very interesting, we spoke to a few investors recently, and I didn't know the how good Texas was for owner finance. Like I, I spoke to a lot of investors that are, are outside of Texas, and they all say the same thing. They all think that. If you're going to be doing owner finance, Texas is where you want to be doing it. You know, Texas is where you want to be for owner finance. Why do you think Texas is such a a great market for owner financing? Uh, is this a PC answer or not? <laughs> um, it's the truth. I, well, I, I it's, know what you're going to say because it's it's because it's, it, it's, it's predominantly Hispanics uh, culture wow, that, that do the racist. do the so uh, owner finance <laughs> stuff. Um, and that's sort of like what he said is like, I think it's the type of person you have because we have people that are used to dealing in cash. Right. And those type of like from the border and the Hispanic, like they deal more in cash. And it's just been a kind of a generational thing on the lower end properties that it's like, and those houses don't qualify for mortgages. Yeah. For the underwriting standards and stuff like that in our city regulations, it's like, it just doesn't work. And people are kind of accustomed and used to that down here where you get up uh, north where that gentleman was out of the Midwest. He's like, I did a few, but people really just didn't get it. Yeah. And they, they kind of looked at the terms and they're like, eh, I want to buy a house. So like, or I, I wanted to get a mortgage or something like that. Mm-hmm. So I don't think people realize up north that the owner finance thing is really much of an option for them because typically the rents are fairly affordable uh, up in the Midwest or they had been and fairly stable as well. So, that piece might change now with the appreciation they're starting to see in the Midwest. And cause before back then it's like, Hey, I'll give you this owner finance note at 10%. And it's just like, yeah, but I can rent over here for $400 cheaper a month. I, I really don't want to, I don't want to mess with that. So I think that's kind of what it is. It's just a kind of a generational thing. It's a culture thing. And it's a, it's a local thing that like, it's just very prominent down here. And I know it's not just like Texas. I mean, it's across kind of the, the South and the, south southeast kind of portion united states that people do the owner financing yeah well much more on the north side like when i was in new york and everything the strategies that work up there is rent to own right you do lease options so with lease options they're not quite an owner finance strategy like you're still kind of the landlord um you didn't quite sell it you're just giving them an option to buy with their with their lease terms and everything so it's a great strategy i loved it um and they don't do it here because investors apparently fucked it up for everybody else um but yeah i mean when when he told me that i was like it makes sense i was in in a lot of latin countries we don't have the the 30-year fixed mortgages like you do in the u.s in most latin countries you don't get those kind of loans so they don't have the mindset of, you know, oh, I'll buy this house and I'll pay it off over the course of my life. It's over there. You, you got to have the money to buy a house, you know, and the, when they come to this country, they're making good money. They work construction. They do whatever jobs they, they got to do. They know how to save because that's the mentality that you come with is you save your money. You don't have that. Um, what do you call it? That um, consumerism consumerism mentality right and my parents were the same way my parents when we came i I was very small but they had the same mentality like my dad was making good amount of money and he was living like we were broke 
right? Because it was like you save every penny that you can make. So yeah, to them to put ten, fifteen, twenty thousand dollars down to pay above or at market rent for a house that's gonna be theirs, it's much better than getting a, a traditional loan because most of them won't qualify for a traditional loan. Yeah. You know, so especially if they've all used cash, like they don't yeah. have they don't they don't use credit cards. They don't do credit. They pay everything cash. So like don't have established credit. Yeah. You can't buy it. So I think it's it's much more and I, I would bet venture to bet that uh it's another very popular strategy in like South Florida. Mm. Because you have the the Cubanos, Cubans. Okay, yeah, I didn't know what that was. Oh. Like a... <laughs> Oye, chico. <laughs> okay. Uh, um, I thought you were talking about a breed of alligator for a second. I was like, what? Uh, <laughs> a breed of alligator. <laughs> wow. Wow. Uh, it's like, this is too one. early for this. Um, <laughs> uh, but I bet that it's very common over there because it's the same mentality of like yeah, it's like exactly. hey it, it's pay cash it's save cash and it's just kind of like oh I don't want to buy a house it's like well you got to do it this route it's like you can't you don't have any credit yeah so you know let, let's talk about some marketing real quick um, I've been you know we've been we made some massive changes to our marketing strategy because one thing that we've noticed going back to everything that we talked about you have high insurance high taxes. Uh, property taxes, high property values, high interest rates. We were doing a lot of marketing and we were coming across homeowners that they're like, yeah, I would love to sell, but where the hell do I go? What do I do? If I sell this house, I'm getting maybe, you know, call it 30 grand in profit or whatever. And I can't afford the same house because I can't afford that new mortgage. And I can't afford to go rent and do something somewhere else. You know what I mean? So it's like, what what do i do and i was like well shit you know you're right i don't know what the hell to tell you like you know i'm i'm pretty good at at selling uh talking and selling uh homeowners but then i was like yeah i mean you have terrible credit you don't make that much money you don't have great the house income. isn't worth that much or it's like yeah yeah i'd love 30 grand but what do i do it's like you would literally need to sell that and downsize move to a trailer park outside of the city somewhere that, and maybe rent it because you probably wouldn't be able to still afford it. So I'm like, well, shit. So we had to m modify our marketing to see like, all right, who are the people that not just want to sell right now, but can sell right now? And that is uh, that was a very interesting shift in, in psychology and dynamics. So what we started doing was targeting absentee homeowners, right? And also free foreclosures. In San Antonio, we've been seeing pre-foreclosures go up. And we're starting to see people that are getting foreclosed on much in a much shorter time frame. Before oh, yeah. foreclosures, we weren't doing them because it was people that they've been behind years. And the foreclosure, it's like, well, the reinstatement is like 70 grand or, or some ridiculous shit. And the house wasn't even worth it. So it wasn't worth chasing. But now we're starting to see people after a few months, they're already getting foreclosed on. The one we just bought last week, they, she was only six months behind. Mm-hmm. And she fell behind like the re it's, it's one of those that would have been an awesome sub too, but it was just kind of like, eh, no, the same thing. It's like, there's just so much equity in the house. that like, I'd rather tap into that right now versus trying to buy this for a rental property. And, the, and that's where we're going to see so many of the opportunities, especially like, it's not going to go away. I think it's going to get worse. We're worse in the sense that we are going to see a lot more foreclosures coming in the market. I saw an article uh, recently that they were talking about how uh, around half a million people in the U.S. are already underwater on their loans 
because of people that bought in 2021, 2022, they overpaid for these houses. Those markets dropped, you know, like Austin and, and these hot markets, they dropped. So all of a sudden, these people are sitting on homes that they It was pretty funny because you, you see some of those articles because I got one too that was saying like even with the expected, depending on who you listen to, a 4% drop in home values this year. That was only going to put like less than 2% of people underwater. And I was just like, hmm, interesting. Yeah. Because like underwater by what standard? What they own, what the house is worth, not including sales costs? So I was like, I bet you'd put it into like how much it's going to cost. You take ten percent off of that to like because that's your typical sale sale cost of with the realtors. Like, I bet that number shoots a hell of a lot higher. Yeah, well, and and that's something that you know there was an article, I think it was by Goldman Sachs. Fuck, I can't remember who it was or Bloomberg. They come out with an article talking about like you know how terrible some of these cities are and how bad off they are and everything. But then if you go down, and this is something I recommend everybody start doing it. This is something that our director, Dre, over here, he told me to do a while back is don't look at the main content. Look at the comments. The comments, one, they're going to make you laugh because some of those comments are freaking People hilarious. Witty, man. People get witty. Oh, they're like, man. Some stuff, like, It's Whoa. so funny. But one of the things that caught my attention on that article is how many people were discrediting the article. They were like, that's bullshit i am in austin those aren't the right numbers or that's bullshit i am in san diego or, or san francisco or whatever these other markets were they're like that's not the actual truth that's not the numbers half of the stuff in this article is complete bullshit so it's like you know you're, you're looking at those things and you're saying oh my god the market is so crazy and the people that are there they're like no but it's not but here's the problem is that your those people's voices nobody sees nobody hears yeah what do they see is that Bloomberg article. So people panic. Now the panic causes the crash. Yeah. Right? Where it's like this crash didn't need to happen, but because everybody is already hedging against the crash, they're hedging against a recession, they're preparing themselves, you will end up causing it. It's kind of like all the mindset work that we've been doing, right? It's like you get what you focus on. <laughs> if you're focusing on a recession or a bad economy, you're going to get a recession in a bad economy. And we're starting to see this. And and obviously, it makes sense. Like, the major tech markets are going to get hit simply because tech jobs are, are, you know, these tech companies that hired like crazy over the last couple of years are now starting to fire like crazy. And these yeah. people moved to those expensive, you know, uh, what do they call Austin? Uh, Texas, California or Texafornia. That's what they're Texafornia. calling California. That's what they're calling Austin. So you're seeing Austin, you know, that's all tech based pretty much. And it's everybody that went in there and they were paying like hundreds Dude, of thousands like, over list. I'll be putting the market update out for Texas full year. I'm just waiting for one more article or one more site to update. And like Austin was getting like 20, 30, 40, 42% appreciation over the course of like six months. Like their six month appreciation rate was like houses were going up by like 30% yeah. in a matter of six months. Just like, oh my God. And yeah. now with those interest rates, it's like, ooh, man. Yeah, because you're, you're getting ready to do the Texas market update. Yeah, and I delayed so. it a month because I want to do the full year to right. see like, hey, this is worth the full year. Um came through so so if you're just listening and you're not make sure you subscribe to our channel uh and also give us a little thumbs up uh it helps us out tremendously 
But you want to make sure you subscribe to our channel because, um, you know, John's going to be dropping the Texas market update. And we do this usually quarterly. And it goes over all the major major cities in Texas. So you can see what the whole of Texas is doing because it's a major economy. I mean, out of you have Florida that's been number one consistently and Texas number two, but they're really close together. Yeah, and then mean, like number three is like way down there. Yeah. Right, like it's it's pretty much Florida. It's like it Texas. depends. Like it depends on what data you look at, because it's like appreciation they fly, they fight, but like it's number of like people that have moved. Like Texas, like is significantly higher than Florida, but then when you look Florida number three is like both Texas and Florida were like in the the six digit range. Yeah, and then like the next one was like twenty five thousand or sixty thousand, yeah. but like Florida's like one hundred and seventy, and Texas was like two seventy. It was like it it's was insane, nuts. It's insane. I think it's one I, thing that has bolstered our real estate economies like people are still moving here oh like yeah. plans are still in motion for people to come here yeah yeah for sure so so to kind of sum up that you know look when you're marketing so i did have a question though because i see lorenzo here he put that he started targeting mobile homes what do you mean by targeting mobile homes like mobile home sellers because i we talked about this last year in one of our coffee with the johns that we do see mobile homes picking up a lot more because we go back to affordability. And there are some mobile homes, which now they call them manufactured homes and, you know, they're rebranding. Um, but there's some of them that you look at them and they look beautiful. Like, I mean, they look like a home. They got the brick facade. They got everything. And they look really, really nice. But they're affordable, right? So these people that have nowhere to pretty much, they can't afford these houses that's your next best option. They're starting to build some really nice manufactured home communities and all these things. So I see you, you know, being maybe a seller of those, but somebody selling a mobile home, I don't see what their motivation would be because, all right, I don't, you know, keep in mind I'm the bad John, all right? So if this triggers you, that's Asshole. why. <laughs> but if you if you live in a mobile home, like you're you're kind of at the bottom already so what's your motivation to sell it you know what i mean like where to, where are you planning on going at that point you know unless you're leaving the state you know and you're you're having to sell it but like i don't see the motivation for a seller to want to sell a mobile home like I, I think I'm not, it, 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 motivation can come from anywhere no for of course those. but um, i'm saying as far as like the same issue that we're seeing with single family or, or i mean the i things, sell and do what it's like well the things or it could just be it's completely dilapidated and you just scrape the thing move it put a new one on it and then sell the whole thing but then you're buying the lot not the mobile home well no you're, you're targeting mobile homes so if a mobile home i'm targeting you can't target land you have to target the mobile home because it's no 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 land. i get it but th at that point you're buying the lot not the mobile home yeah, for yeah. sure. But it's targeting mobile, okay. targeting mobile home, and parks and communities. Um, and so I mean, anybody could be moved. Like they're older people, they're moving yeah. into assisted living. Uh, that could be one thing. Uh, they're moving in with family, or I mean, any reason they might be moving so somewhere. So there, so there's a little niche there. So this is what I like about marketing is this is not the time, and this is something that you and I have uh, one of our other changes in marketing is this is not the time to be doing shotgun marketing. This is a time to quote a, a, an investor, a friend of ours, and our coach, Logan Fulmer, spearfishing. This is a time where your marketing needs to be more targeted, where you can dedicate more time, more energy, more effort going after really good deals. So in your, in your example, you let's say Lorenzo, he's looking to pick up mobile homes, then you might want to target mobile homeowners that have 65 and over exemptions on their home. 
because now you're targeting elderly mobile homeowners that could be making that transition to an assisted living facility to uh you know or to that mansion in the sky um <laughs> but sniper marketing that's what he calls it sniper marketing yeah, so his motivation is lot rents payments too high they will downgrade to a cheaper rent which i could definitely see yeah, that yeah because land values have really gone up and that gets passed right on to people renting the renting the, the lot so people say like hey i'm gonna take my mobile home and go move somewhere else to a different community or they just move to a new community and it's like i'm just leave their mobile home there depending on the um regulations of the park and and uh, and then that brings up the other saying that i love is the riches are in the niches this is a youtube guy that i hear uh sean kennel he says that all the time, and I think in these types of market, that's in the la in the past couple of years, you made money pretty much in any area of real estate. It just mm -hmm. didn't matter. People wanted houses; you couldn't miss. That's why all these people that started in the last couple of years, they feel like they're geniuses. And it's like, dude, everybody was making money. Like, you know, congratulations, but you're not that special. Like, it, it was very hard for people to lose money in the last couple of years. Yeah. Um. That being said, like now. This is not the time to be doing that shotgun. This is the time for you to narrow down. This is the time as a business, maybe you start leaning down, right? Uh, that's something that we started doing. Uh, like we were able to cut out over five grand worth of marketing costs a month by just switching our marketing style because the shotgun approach just wasn't working anymore. So you're able to lean down, save some money, reallocate that capital resources and time to doing sniper or spear fishing, however you want to call it. Um, and, and start niching down into things like that. And that's what I love about real estate. There's so many ways to make money in this business, but you got to pick one and you got to focus on it. So where do you see the biggest opportunities in real estate? Like, do you see it more in the commercial space? Do you see it more in the single family residential manufacturing? Where do you see the biggest, uh, potential right now? That's a good question. I, I, I really don't know because it's it's a very generalized statement where I think you can make money in all of them because it's like there's no such thing as a bad product. There's just bad prices. Yeah. So you just have to get it at good prices where I know I, – I think I can't say a class. It's like I think every class – has opportunity depending on where you're able to negotiate and get prices because there's buyers out there for everything. You just have to realize like prices are lower than what they think they're they they should be. Right. Or would you what, prices are lower on the back end than what you think they are today. But where because, do you see the most demand? You think from a buyer perspective, where would you think? Well, that we're we only, might see I'm it? only in the single family space, so I have no right. idea. Uh, as like I don't, we don't do mobile homes. We don't do lower end stuff. To where it's like, it's like the demand is there for everything at the right mm -hmm. prices. Um, I think the demand is still there for your suburban neighborhoods uh, versus like for single family. It's like I've talked to a lot of people that. Buyers want your suburban style built after like 1970 renovations, smaller renovations. They'll pay a higher premium for those than the projects that take longer. Cause like for us, like I tell wholesalers, like I don't want anything that's more than a $50,000 renovation. And I don't really want anything built before like 1970. Mm -hmm. I was like, I'll look at things be below that, but like definitely not in the forties because you're now you're needing wiring, you're needing cast iron plumbing. And it's just like, there's too many other things that can go wrong in that style of renovation. And like, I'll still buy something like that. 
I just, it's been a long time since I've seen prices that work for stuff like that. I would almost have to have a steal of a deal. Like I'm not even going 70% at that point. I want like 65, uh, 60% of ARV minus repairs well, just it, because of the renovation. And I have the market risk. Cause like, I don't know how long that's going to take. And yeah. the cost of those renovations have gone up so much that it just, it's mind boggling of what repairs cost right now. So and, it's and like, for us, the, the other factor has been the headache that it has been working with the labor at those at those level of renovations because at that level of renovation you're requiring more skilled labor you're requiring more labor period and it's always been such a challenge as far as managing those projects for the profit that it's going to yield where it's like the amount of management and oversight those projects need are tremendous because you need to you're doing a lot of major stuff to the homes you're you're probably opening up walls like you're saying the all the wiring all the plumbing you got to make sure everything's up to code you got to make sure everything's getting done right because like you to your point before if you're not putting out great quality it won't sell right so it's like you need to do good quality contractors you can't you should never leave them to do their own thing. I keep hearing of people that they get a con they get a project going and then they take a vacation while the project is going and then they come back and they're like, oh shit, I found myself with all these problems. It's like, yeah, you got to keep supervising these projects. So if you're not supervising them, if you're not managing them, then it's like, you know, there's a higher chance of the projects going south. And then if you have to supervise them to that point, is it worth the return? So, like, to your point, it's so much work that the profit needs to be there. Yeah, it's exactly right. And like I said, no bad product, just bad pricing. So yeah. you got to get that pricing right. And that's the problem, I think, right now is there's still too much slack in the line of sellers wanting what how they could sell for six months ago, eight months ago. They're in denial. And buyers, the market hasn't stabilized long enough yet for them to realize like, hey, now's a good time to buy because prices are stabilized. They want what the, they think the market could be in six months from now. Yeah. So I still think we're in that. I think it's going to be at least halfway through this year to see how things have react through the summertime. Cause I'm, I'm hearing a lot of rumors and the, the bond market's pricing in that the feds only going to hike rates by two times for, at a quarter point each and then mm -hmm. hold steady. So it's one of those like, Hey, if they do that, that, that might show that like, Hey, they're done. The inflation's under control. It's already come down from into the nines back down into like the sevens and sixes, depending on what portion you look at. And uh, mm -hmm. if that continues to fall, that will, bolster and stabilize the, the real estate market. Um, not so much from the sense of buyers being able to afford houses, but people wanting even lower prices, thinking the market's going to continue to fall and deteriorate. So that's stuff that I'm, I'm curious because like we haven't gone negative yet in year over year appreciation, but they didn't start hiking rates until April of last year. Yeah. So that's the time that I'm looking for to see like, hey, what is this stuff going to really do around that time? Because that's also the buying season. Yeah. Like right now we're in the, like I call it like basically a double winter. It's the highest rates we've had in a very long time. And it's also the winter time for a real estate cycle. Mm -hmm. So now we should have bottomed out and it should typically going off of what it did basically before 2020 it should start to get a little better and uh, inventory should start to drop or hold steady. So we'll see. 
We'll see how it, it turns Inventory out. Inventory should start to drop. W what does that mean? Um, we're going to have more buyers coming in the market, less people selling. Yeah, more buyers coming in the market, not not people selling. I mean, okay. you still have people selling, uh, but buyers would be entering the market to buy around that time frame, typically. So, so I, I want you to break this down because this is a conversation we had with uh, Dan Francis, the owner of Stepstone Realty. And I think it was you or him brought up an excellent point that- Probably me. <laughs> probably you. <laughs> if it was an excellent point, it was you. Um, that the 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 influx of buyers that we've seen in the last couple of years. Oh, that's me. The, was, the barred from the future. Yeah, yeah. Explain that. Break so it was an article that, was that I had gotten written by somebody, and I can't remember what it was. He's like, all I think the whole pandemic really did is we borrowed buyers from the future mm -hmm. because people that weren't going to be buyers or just yet, and they're like, well, I'm still saving up money. Well, all of a sudden they got stuck home, their bills dropped, their in ca their cash went through the roof, they got checks in the mail, and then all of a sudden uh, mortgage rates fell through the floor. So the houses were actually, even though prices were increasing, prices were cheaper than they were two years ago from a payment standpoint. So that got a lot of buyers be like, oh my God, I can afford a house now, and now I'm stuck at home. So people that would have been buyers like today and in the next year or two bought two years ago or a year ago when prices were booming, when they had all the cash before mortgages got super expensive. So that's all we really did is we borrowed from the future. So that's going to be something that's going to take a long time to kind of come back uh, a year or two before we get that back to that buyer pool. But now luckily we have the, a replacement of buyers coming in from out of state. We still have a net migration into the state that brings a lot of people in. Right. But that's what he said. He's like, I think we just borrowed a lot of local buyers from the future. And that's why, so we that's that's boom. where going back to it. That's where the market research matters so much, because if you're in a market that is losing population, then you know you're you're in a troubled market right now. But if you're in a market like Texas, like Florida, that you're you're still positive on migration and people moving here, it's like well then that's going to mean that there's still going to be demand, and either for rentals or for buy uh, or for you know retail sales. So. Those data points are the ones that you want to use and keep in mind whenever you are making those decisions on where am I going to invest? What type of marketing am I going to do? So, you know, I don't know. Those things excite me because it's, uh, especially in the market that we're in, it's like, cool. You know, there's more of an upside. Um, the only thing, though, is it still gets me how a place like St. Louis, once of inventory, and San Antonio, Texas, you know, that's been strong for so long. You're at, you know, across over four months of inventory. Well, I think it's the so, same. It's the same thing. Like where I say Austin, it boomed. Well, Texas as a whole boomed. Yeah. So now it's one of the things like what follows a boom, a bust to where St. Louis boomed, but it didn't boom like we did here. Mm -hmm. So it could be a, they're still in the quote unquote boom times and it really hasn't uh, adjusted yet because they are still really affordable. Their prices aren't as high. They're high compared to what they were a few years ago. But when now you start comparing like Texas to the Midwest, you kind of have that discrepancy in pricing to where it's like mm, St. Louis is still more affordable. Oh, actually, I want to address this. Jerry Sanders, he asked, what do you mean by niche down? How do you target a specific market or area of town? Great question. Yeah, very good question. Because that those are the questions that you need to be asking yourself in order to make sure that you're pulling the right information. First thing is, primarily, you need to build a buyer's list. This is the one thing I tell everybody to do. 
it, you need to know where the buyers are because the buyers, the, especially the savvy ones, they're going to tell you where the market is. You know, they're going to tell you where they're moving, the things they're buying, why they're buying it, what prices they're buying. And if you're a new investor and you don't know where to buy or what to buy or how to buy, you want to learn from experienced buyers. So you want to build a strong buyers list and ask them all those questions. And then the next thing is data. We love pulling data. We don't make decisions off of, you know, hunches or anything. So you want to look at pull if you're in a state, pull the major cities of the state and try to see what their months of inventory is. What is their median price home? What is their median rent? So you start seeing what affordability looks like and where are people moving to and why they're buying there. And once you get the median price point and the months of inventory, you're going to see which area of town is actually hotter and which areas kind of suck. So in San Antonio, John does the market update. And when you pull the months of inventory, you see that you probably shouldn't be in the historic districts right now because their months of inventory is through the roof. But there's still other areas that have low months of inventory. That means you have buyers there. You have people that are constantly buying there. And that's where you want to be or close to those areas. So if you are doing marketing in a certain zip code, because that zip code has very low months of inventory, you know, you can do marketing in that zip code and then go to the surrounding zip codes because people still want to be close in proximity to those areas. For whatever reason, those areas work better. And the data is going to tell you why. Is it affordability? Is it jobs? Why are those areas doing better than others? What do you what do you have to add to something like that? that well, I mean, I think you answered it perfectly. It's, it's exactly that. I'd, I'd kind of mimic that. It's like niche down. It's like find your niche of not just saying like i'm just gonna shotgun at everything like yeah. i'm gonna blast all of absentee homeowners over 65s pre foreclosures all of this stuff it's like no niche down like pick one yeah. and get really good at that one and then add beyond that because sellers aren't everywhere you're gonna spend a shitload of marketing it takes a lot longer to follow up to work these sellers and get them to a point that they want to sell so that's always seemed to be like niche down. It's just kind of like, hey, pick a niche and get really good at it, whether it's pre-foreclosures or it's FT homeowners or people that are relocating or anything like that. So that is something that just to mimic you of niche down means. It's like yeah. pick a and, niche and, then, and niche it down. And then what, what's great about that is if you have a tight budget with marketing or time restraints or whatever, you're able to dedicate more money, more capital, more resources to a particular sector or particular size. So let's say you're building your buyers list, you're doing your data, and you're seeing that, like, let's say in San Antonio, uh, owner finance buyers are crushing it right now, right? I'm not saying that's the case, but I'm saying, let's say that's what your data shows you. Then do owner finance deals. Don't worry about everything else. Don't worry about fixing flips. Don't worry about buying holds. Pick, find your owner finance buyers, Niche, figure out what is their buying criteria. What Like the owner finance buyers that we know, we know that they won't cross a certain price point. We know that they don't want in certain areas. So th what that does, it allows us to focus our marketing on specific sub-markets and really go hard. Now we can hit those sub-markets. We can hit them with the absentees, maybe pre-foreclosures, but we're hitting very niche markets at that point, and we're going after the same type of deal. So our efforts and resources and focus is all all targeted at that one strategy that's working because of the buyers that we're in. So, and if you're a buyer yourself, I mean, that's the best part because if you're the buyer, then you can see what it is that you want. 
and then you niche down in that particular area. So I hope that makes sense, Jerry. Um, if you have any follow up to that, let us know. But yeah, I mean, I think right now, and and even though we don't wholesale a lot, um, one thing that I've been doing is still speaking to a lot of buyers. I'm trying to get get a good gauge for the market, and that's where how we made our shift from not selling to uh, buy and hold investors anymore because of that. We started running our numbers. We started seeing what they were doing. And as they started adjust, adjusting their buying criteria, we're like, well, it doesn't make sense anymore to sell to you. You need them way too low. So now we started shifting. We need more flicks and flip buyers. So who are those people? And there's still, which is shocking to me, there's still a decent sized buyer pool for land. I, I, that to me is shocking. Who's I, buying land? Just buyers that have been reaching out and I've been reaching out to that they do fix and flip. They're like, oh yeah, I'm buying land. I'm like, why? Like That's interesting know. because every person I know that sells land can't move land. I know. So my thing is like, are you buying land in the sense like, yeah, I'll buy it if it's like damn near free. Yeah. Or or are you actually have an act- a, a decent strategy that's helping you with your land investment, because there's this um, the, there's this data here. So, KB Homes announced that its buyer cancellation rate in the fourth quarter of 22 spiked to 68 percent. Its buyer cancellation rate to 68. Well, it's also you got to think of what what happened in the fourth quarter was uh, interest rates. That's when they got to the yeah. highest point, like August, September time from what the fourth quarter of September, October, December, November, October. September, October, October, November, December. There you go. Um, I was like, wait a minute, like, is that the right number? Math? No. Um, that's when, like, that was right after prices like yeah. really peaked. I think it was like August, September when uh, mortgage rates really got up there, high sixes and sevens yeah. uh, for your like good credit uh, people. So, but that, but that's the issue, right? So, you know, these buyers are telling me, yeah, I'm picking up land. KB Homes, they have the margins to drop. And they have the margins to give uh, credit buy down well, and doing. all these things. But you, as a single infill lot builder or whatever, you probably—I doubt you're going to oh, have no. those margins. And that's what they're doing. Is like, like instead of dropping prices, they're just giving like retarded incentives. Like, where they're selling them mortgages at like three percent to get like instead of doing price drops because that hurts the rest of their inventory. If the market were to come back, appraisals wouldn't make it yeah. because like shit, we sold all this stuff down there. Now the prices are like they'll give credit. Like we've lost out uh sales to build new builds. Oh yeah. And I'm like, this is a two hundred and twenty thousand dollar house, two hundred and thirty, whatever we were listed at. Like I'd have no know any buyers that or builders that can compete at that price point. But it's because the incentives they're giving. It's like, yeah, they're buying a two hundred and fifty, two hundred and seventy thousand dollar house, but they're giving them like once in a lifetime style incentives to buy. Like we'll give you a rate buy down for the first five years at three percent and ten thousand closing costs so- plus the ability to do a package. Break in the that house. down. What's a rate buy that buy down? They literally it's really that. They they buy down your interest rate. Right. So you think about it, it's like it's just math. So your interest that's rate that's what's stopping uh, retail buyers from buying is their interest rates are too high. Yeah. So like they just look at the interest rate, like the spread of just like, hey, between a six percent mortgage and a three percent mortgage, the amount of money over five years is call it fifteen thousand dollars difference in interest payments. So KB Homes is saying like for the first five years, we'll f- basically they're just paying your interest for you. Your interest rate's still 5%. 
it's just for the first three years, it's 3%. And that person that's holding that mortgage is still making the 5%. They're just getting a cash influx up front of that 3%. And they might give a little bit of a discount on stuff like that uh, for that cash today. So that's what that rate buy down is. And like we're selling one of our houses right now. We're giving them $10,000 in seller's concessions to do a rate. We sold it as a rate buy down. Whether they use it for that or not, I don't know. But it's ten grand for a rate buy down to literally buy down their interest rate. Yeah. So, so when you're looking at those big builders and we see them all over San Antonio as well. So it's like, we can't even begin to compete with them. Why the hell would we get into it? So those are the shifts that I'm starting to see. And, and even though they're like, Oh yeah, we're buying land to your point, we know a lot of wholesalers that wholesale land only. And they're like, well, well I haven't been able to sell land to anybody. So yeah. it's like, obviously it's a price issue, but then it's like, then what are you trying to build at that point? I don't, you know, it, it's a very interesting, um, you know, situation with that. Yeah. I, and I mean, tax rates on land or not tax rates, tax, tax rates are really the same. It's just a lot of the value of, if you have like a single family house, like is in the house and the structure itself, which pushes the tax rates way up to where your tax rate might be relatively low on your overall land value. So the taxes to hold the property aren't that expensive. Yeah. So that could be something too. It's like, yeah, my tax rates a thousand a year, 1500 a year, 2000 a year. It's like on a month to month basis, that's not that bad. But if prices, when it comes back to the other side, I can now sell that land for a higher price. So I wanted to get, so somebody asked the question and in, in a post that we did, cause we say this is a time where everybody that's rich and wealthy always says this is when the rich get rich when the wealthy get wealthy this is the time to do it when it's bad market recessions you know we're going through corrections stuff like that this is the time to make that money um and, and to build your business and to build it even stronger we saw a lot of people growing massively their companies over the last 2 years which is like you're growing your company over a hot market the problem is like you won't be able to sustain that company when the market turns, you know. So, and we're starting to see that with a well, lot the size of, of the company. Yeah, I mean, you look at like mortgage companies. Yeah. Of uh, oh, with the refis. You know, and so, everything? like the refi yeah. market is half of their business, and that market is gone for. Now, I'm not in the mortgage business at all. I'm just kind of looking at basic math. So, I think it was like eighty percent or eighty-five percent of the nation mortgages are in like three percent around like low threes and under mm -hmm. and it's like who in their right mind would refinance unless they need money to like a six percent mortgage yeah and when half their business comes from refis like you have to wait a long time if you just did a refinance pulled cash out of your property you gotta wait a long time to build another cash cushion to want to do a refi at a higher rate yeah. to do it so you now need to wait people to move to higher interest rates, enough of the market to buy and get a higher blend, a higher rate of that six percent. So when mortgage rates do drop eventually, even if they, I mean, if they do, to get that refi market back. Yeah. So you want to talk about we pulled buyers forward a couple of years. They pulled buyer refi people ahead like decade yeah. or more. So mortgage companies that blew up over the last two years trying to get that business and sustain, they're I bet they're doing massive layoffs now because it's like I can't sustain. The, the refi market's completely gone. Oh, and that and that's the issue that we're seeing also with the tech industry. 
they went through a crazy hiring spree in the last couple of years because of how much demand, how many buyers were in the market, just buying up everything. That's what drove up inflation so much. Uh, there was a lot of consumers in the market, especially with all that stimulus money. Everybody had, you know, nice savings. And the problem was like they, they, you know, they hired all those people. And now that things are starting to cool down and level off where it's like, well, the massive business and we don't, we don't need all these people now. We don't have that demand. So the layoffs start happening. But that means that you're going to start seeing companies become more affordable if you want to buy, acquire a company, or if you want to build a company, because this is the time to lean down, be smart with your investments. Like this, You're going to start seeing massive opportunities. And one of the, the things I had on here, an article I sent you this, I think it was this morning I sent to you, how Bed Bath & Beyond is defaulting on their credit line. And they're thinking about, you know, filing for bankruptcy because they just don't have enough money to take care of their own credit lines. Well, now, especially they can't refi their debt that they have because exactly. like, like that's what a lot of companies did is like, and that's what people say, like, is a big worry with uh, credit defaults and stuff like that is like, as companies start running, burning through their cash and they need to refinance credit lines and shorter term debt from Two three percent to five six seven percent, it gets much more expensive. Yeah, and that's where like they say like it's a long time for that stuff to work its way through the market. It's like yeah, interest rates rose last year. That's why you saw the stock market tank last year, mm -hmm. and this year it's or the last couple months it's been rising, is because it's a precursor to where they think the market's going to be. That's why it crashed last year. I was like, but everyone's still doing fine. I was like, yeah, because this is what they think it's going to happen in the next six, twelve, eighteen months. Mm. So it's a precursor to what the overall economy thinks it's going to be. Yeah. So as that stuff rolls out, that's where people are going to start not being able to expand and do things like that. And Bed Bath & Beyond, they've been teetering with bankruptcy for yeah. years. Yeah. And I think it's as the COVID just kind of, or 2020 kind of really just gave them a lifeline yeah. with lower and lower interest rates yeah, they, and more they and more cash They delayed what was going to happen anyway. The inevitable. Yeah. Because like, when's the last time you went into Bed Bath & Beyond to buy anything? It's like, yeah, they had a bunch of knickknacks and little things like that, but it's like, I go to Amazon, like anything I want in Bed Bath, especially now Amazon, you can return literally anything. And uh, it's one of the, uh, a joke that I heard a long time ago uh, from a comedian and uh about Walmart saying that like, you can return anything to Walmart and Amazon's become that. He's like, man, you can go get diapers, take them back. It's like, there was already poop in these diapers. I want new ones. And Amazon and, and Walmart would take them back. It's like Amazon, dude, you could buy something, use it for a little bit. If you need it for short term and literally return it to them, but they don't even check anything. That's hilarious. And you can, it's well, like, it's it, almost it, like rent to, I mean, I just think, a rental. I think it was Dre that sent me an article or something about that, that they were going to start charging a restocking fee for returns because their returns were ridiculously high. Like people would just do the same shit. They would just buy shit and return it and stuff like that. Like some people will buy blow up mattresses, break them and then, re and then return them, try to exchange them and shit. I'm not saying who that was, but, um, you know, I, I've were heard, they in this room? I don't know. I'm just saying I, I've heard of people. Was the person that. not on the camera? The one that did it? That's why she's laughing so hard over there. <laughs> More than once. So, so all those things are happening. So, I, well, I the funny thing them. is, like, they don't restock anything. Amazon doesn't no, restock they anything. Throw that shit out. Yeah, you can buy those Amazon boxes because yeah. there's a whole industry of Amazon resellers that because you've seen yeah. those videos where they just buy like these massive boxes of inventory that might be right, might not be half broken. 
and half not, and then they go and resell the stuff. Oh yeah, yeah, they buy the pallets of of all these things, and they get them at a fraction of the cost. But we digress. Going back to the, <laughs> the the main topic, right? So this is a time where wealth is built, especially. I heard Tony Robbins recently. He says he's friends with you know a lot of billionaires in the world. And one of the things he says is that he expects, uh, they all expect that this is going to last at least another eight years. That yeah. we're starting to see, like, this is just the tip of it. Yeah. Like, we haven't even begun to see, like, the real problems emerge. Well, is that that podcast that uh, one of our friends sent us to uh, about, like, what his justification is for higher inflation? Yeah. And it's not people overspending. Mm -hmm. uh, that he's saying is going to drive it. He's saying what's going to drive it is the reshuffling of the manufacturing and supply chains. Mm. Because you look at what's going on over in China. As the last several decades, we've got a lot of cheap labor from China to build iPhones. I mean, when's the last time you bought something that didn't come from China? I was like, I bet 80% of your products that you buy at your house come from China. So, and it's been a very low cost and it's been very affordable for us here in the States. We get used to that kind of stuff in like the more developed world, I guess. Um, mm -hmm. The problem with it is, is now what 2020 and COVID really did. Like they're still shutting people down. Like to the fact that they are welding, they were welding people in their apartments with their zero COVID policies. Like, oh, somebody that's, that's complex tested positive for COVID, we're welding the door shut where you can't leave your apartment wow. like that is nuts and finally china's starting to back off that policy a little bit because an apartment complex caught fire and people were welded in their apartments and they couldn't get out a bunch of people died and that is now oh, people were, were they trying to control their population too <laughs> well yeah i mean the, 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 they're they're very complicit of listening to the government there. Their culture is whatever the government says, you do. Yeah. Not here where people do push back. Yeah. Uh, and over there, it's like, hey, whatever the government says, it's just this is cultural. That's how they accept it. But now they're starting to push back in large man, like a large way in protesting like these people died because of this. We're fed up with you. So you're starting to see some of that kind of stuff back off. But they had that policy, which is just screwing up supply chains left and right. When that's where like all the chip manufacturing, all the issue with cars that drove car prices through the roof. And now these big companies that's taken decades to build these supply chains are realizing like, hey, this isn't good anymore. This isn't good for our business. We need to move our manufacturing to other places. Yep. And we need to build these things at places that are more uh sustainable long term so they're bringing stuff that isn't so subject to uh oceans and shipping containers and the shipping industry so basically in the united states they realize like hey we need to move stuff to we can or where we can cross land so you're talking mexico and south america and canada so we have a lot of resources to do there the problem is the labor is much higher here mm -hmm. so when they start rebuilding these supply chains and bringing things in they have to pay more, which pushes our products up. So it's not that people are consuming it too much. And there's too much cash driving prices up. Right. I'm trying to find that that uh, the equilibrium between supply and demand. It's the fact that it's like, hey, our costs are just going up. So that's going to drive prices from an iPhone from what do, what do you pay now? About a thousand bucks for a, um, I think I think that's what this one was. 12 or 1400 bucks, whatever it was. Now you're going to start seeing 1800, $2,000 for phones. And then now that's going to do things where people can't go buy a new $2,000 iPhone every single year. You might see them come out every other year with new, new phones and stuff like that. Cause you're already starting to see sales drop or like their iPhone 14s. Cause like they can't get them. Yeah. And people are like, oh, I'm just good with the old one. I don't want to pay that price for a new phone. 
And now they're starting to retool their supply chains because the podcast you listen to, a guy was saying, I ordered an iPhone 14 like six months ago and I still don't have it. Because they literally can't get the parts because of where all these supply chains are to build. I mean, I, I think he was saying like the number of countries that touch what goes into these things. It was like a mind boggling number. Like oh, there's like 40, 50, 60, 70 countries that are involved in making an iPhone between like raw materials from basically the raw material in the land to sitting in your hand. Like how many countries touch that thing to build it and yeah. a main piece goes through China. So you're having to start see where that's going to come from. And he says that's what's going to drive costs up. Uh because China's got 1.3 billion people. Mexico's only got 1. Point, or 130 million, so 10% of the population. So you got to really rebuild supply chains that's going to drive costs up. And he says that's where they're saying like inflation's going to come from is literally it's like we're moving away from the low cost producers of China and we're having to move well, to other areas around the world. And I think what what the other problems this are going to this is going to present is you got a certain level of work ethic and manufacturing and mindset in you know in, in most of these Asian countries, China, the Philippines, stuff like that. That if you start changing from there to Mexico to South Central American countries, South American countries, like they don't, they're not really used to that. So I think the the culture change that's going to be needed for the manufacturing, for the creation, for the developing, for all those things, it's going to take a minute for yeah. them to get there. Right? Where in China and all these places. They're used to it. They've been doing this shit for decades. So it's like they have the process of systems. They're, people already, you know, they know that those jobs are available and stuff like that. Where in these other countries, like, people are used to what they're used to. And you're going to have to shift that and say, no, we need to manufacture and we need to manufacture fast. You need to work all the time. Or you just be able to, to continue to manufacture. Yeah. So you have those things of like... uh like all our pharmaceuticals. Right. When we realized like, hey, this whole pandemic thing hit, we couldn't get basic needs because it all came from China. And China's like, eh, now nah, we're going to hold you hostage. So think about it from like a strategy of kind of like war times or uh, times of struggle or who's got more control over the other country. Because, I mean, it's always a power battle for countries. It's going to be that. So that's what they're saying. Like the next eight, 10 years, there's going to be a lot of retooling. There's going to be a lot of like kind of inflation and some very choppy times while we retool everything. But his play was like, after that's done, he's like, uh, the Americas in Canada or Canada's part of that North America, central and South are going to be sitting very well. Yeah. Oh yeah. Because of the location of population and the resources that we do have as compared to other places in the world that don't play well together. Yeah. So that's where he said like the, the question is gonna come in is how long is that gonna take? He's saying that. like like a decade or more. Yeah. Like it's like basically all of the twenty twenties are gonna be a just very choppy year and you're not going to see a whole lot of growth. And I've heard that from a lot of people yeah. that just saying like this next year, this next 10 years, you're not going to see the growth like you did the last 10 years in anything, stocks, uh, real estate expansions, just because there's a lot, we borrowed, uh, even then we borrowed so much from the future Yeah, of where it was. It's going to take a, that's what they call like, what's the two thousands, the lost decade. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like, it's going to be kind of that way again, where like we lost, we boomed and through like the, the 2010s and into 2020 and 21, but now we've dropped off significantly. So you're going to see a lot of just like choppiness all over the place. Yeah. And, and I think, I mean, kind of like what they're doing with that is what you need to do with your own business where it's like, you need to reassess how you're operating your company. 
you know, where are the efficiencies? Where are the the where can you trim the fat, right? Where can you trim the fat? Where can you make the changes in your company? Where can you maybe outsource to cheaper labor, more effective labor? Where can you make uh, you know reduction maybe in staffing that you just don't need? Marketing that you're not using, office space that's not necessary. Like, what are the things that you can do to lean down, be more effective, be more efficient, increase your revenue, decrease your expenses? Because right now, that's those are the companies that I think are going to thrive. Is those companies that are becoming more efficient? And it seems like the U.S. is trying to do that as a whole, where they're like, "All right, this is just not productive." It's like for we us. don't want to, the globalization of the last like 20, 30 years is reversing because now you see the downside to it especially now that because like the, i mean since world war ii essentially like and, and when china opened up in i think the 70s and 80s and like now we see china's risen and they don't play nice yeah. they've risen to a power now you got the conflicting powers of china and the u.s and they're just like yeah we want to be the best no we want to be the best and now it's like we depend too much on each other to where it's like we're going to start pulling away from each other especially with the uh, exacerbation of russia uh, or oh, the yeah. exacerbation that of and that was the other thing he talked about is the demographics of those two countries where China for the first time's population fell. Mm -hmm. That's not good for a civilization and a government. Doris saying like we're really entering the last like he's saying like a, a collapse, but a overall just complete breakdown of like Russia and China then by like twenty thirty of like how their governments run because with declining populations, debt levels and things like that. So he's got a very different view than a lot of other people do of like what China and Russia are going to be able to pull off. Cause he says like, well, can she just fix that with immigration? He goes, who wants to immigrate to a country where they weld you in your apartment complex? If you cough. Yeah. It's like yeah. nobody immigrates to China, like not in the numbers they need. We're like the U S like, People still want to come to this country oh, because of, of the growth opportunities. Yeah. Or people say it's such a terrible place. But like, no, people still want to be able to come here because of the economic freedoms. And Europe is so fractured with its different systems and its difference. Uh, he's like, the EU, he's calling, it's probably going to fall apart in the next 10 years as well. Wow. Just wow. because of the way the structure is done, where it a lot of countries have. don't like each yeah. other, to where like, you have it's like what was he he said something about germany and the manufacturing and he's like that's like the majority of the growth of europe comes from germany and like one or two other countries and like they're the ones that are just kind of getting tired of like we're tired of dragging all these people along with us well they and they're them in there and they're tired the, the people at the bottom are tired to be like we don't want to play by your rules anymore because yeah, we can't, can't keep up it's like we can't devalue our currency to get immigration in here and get cheaper products we're right. stuck to this thing and but, their energy costs and that, like, that was the biggest factor like when i was living in spain that was the biggest thing that spaniards were pissed at is they were forced into the eu so it was greece italy portugal and the problem is they can't keep up with countries like germany and france that they have manufactured and they have such a robust economy and it's like we don't and like to your point before when spain had the peseta and not the euro they yeah people will go with euros and with like 20 euros, you fill up a whole grocery cart. You know what I mean? Because it was so cheap. But it worked for Spain because they had an immense amount of tourism because their country was affordable to go visit. You know what I mean? But then when they started changing into euro and things became just as expensive, then it's like, well, now our tourism took a nosedive. You know, and, and, on, and our opportunity to compete took a nosedive because we can't 
create the manufacturing that Germany has. Yeah, Europe's is too fractured. Yeah. And that's why they say like the United States is like has such an economic advantage as long as we don't screw it up with uh like our debt levels and things like that and like but I mean we already have, but so has everybody else. Yeah, it, well, I mean, say just like the the dollar reserve currency piece is what I, I'm more going at. Um, but that's what I'm saying, like the they because that's my argument, right? Like they say, you hear people say, "Oh, the dollar reserve is not going to last long because of what they're doing." But it's like, who isn't doing that though? Well, no, uh, it's it's not who isn't doing that. It's the the world becoming fractured into where it's like, hey, we're not going to globalize and send stuff everywhere to where it's like you got the East and the West. And now it's no longer a blended world. It's just kind of like the East doesn't use the dollar. The West doesn't use any of their stuff either. And so think, that's where like, and that's where it might go that way. Might not, but we're getting down some. But, but this of, is, I think it's usually what ends up happening and why you need a free market, right? Because you're going to have everything went one way. And then it's like, all right, that we went too far. Now let's bring it back. And they're going to go the other way. It's going to be that pendulum. And it's like, all right, this is too far, too. You can't have everything in the Americas because it's like, yeah, we do need kind of maybe the infrastructure or the cheaper labor or whatever that we can find over there. So they're going to, with these shifts, I think they're going to find more of a balanced playground to do where it's like, all right, we're not going to depend like to make an iPhone you know how many countries was it? Oh, dude, it was it was, it was a, such a stupid high number. I don't yeah, remember so what it was. Let's it was say like, like you know fifteen countries or whatever. Oh no, it was is. like fifties. It was it was it was a really high number. All right, so fifty countries to make an iPhone. Well, now we were able because of these shifts and everything, we were able to narrow it down to twenty countries. So it's like it's made it more efficient, more effective. So it's like okay, you know, you start making those pivots and those changes, and you become more of an effective operating business and company and country. And but the problem is, in the meantime, those pendulums, like you're saying, like we're talking about, is they're going to swing to the other side and it's going to overcorrect in the wrong direction. And then you're going to see fractures and problems there. And right now we are in that pendulum swing. So in that in that middle ground, it's like, well, you know, what do you do at this point? Like you don't have businesses that are blowing the hell up. You know, you don't have that easy money to be made, you know, so you have that instability, like you're saying. It's a great retooling. Yeah, that choppiness. So uh, we had a, a guy, that he commented on one of the videos that I said, this is not the time to be buying garbage. This is the time to be growing your business and building wealth. And he says, so with all these opportunities coming up, and he's he's a special person. He's a, he's a Bills fan, all right? So you, you may know who he is. Um, and, <laughs> and he said, is this the time to buy your dream home? What is your advice to him? Is this the right time to well, buy your dream home? That was I, I went mini viral with uh, a video about just I think the last I looked at it was like over like seventeen thousand views, mm -hmm. and it, the title was like "Now is not the time to buy your dream home to upgrade your lifestyle." Yeah, um, and somebody commented, "Oh yeah, because you're the all knowing a guy in his 30s. <laughs> it's kind of funny, like I didn't even reply to the comment. I was like, "Whatever, dude, it should." Um, it it was pretty it was pretty funny, but like no, I don't think it it is a right time to like upgrade your lifestyle. And I mean, unless you're getting stuff on the cheap, yeah, like you can find good deals for things right now. The people that are that did do that and now are struggling. Yep. So you're not saying you can't do it via that route. I just wouldn't go pay retail prices for upgrading your lifestyle right now. It's like eh, I'd really want to be sitting on cash to find those deals to upgrade my lifestyle. Because mm -hmm. um, like right now, I think it's 
because I'm still in the same boat. Like I still think there's too much risk for things to continue to fall and get worse yet. Mm -hmm. I mean, for currently, but I don't want to go upgrade leading into that to where it's like, Hey, when I start to see things kind of stable off and bottom off, or I find like a really good deal. Sure. I'll jump on it, but I wouldn't be buying the, like the $800,000 house, like right now at the top of this thing. It's just kind of like, nah, there's obviously there's exceptions, but I think as a general rule of thumb, that's not something I would be going for right now, but we think a lot different than the average consumer, especially than a bills fan. And I mean, to add to that point, like what I told them was if you can afford to invest and buy your dream home, do it right. By all means, you have the capital. But for those of us that's like, well, you know, if I buy that house, then there goes like 50, 80, maybe 100% of my savings. Then it's like, don't do that because you're going to have some amazing opportunities come up where it's like your dream home. If you make enough money, you can always buy it later, right? Because at that point, money doesn't matter, right? But the opportunities to make that level of money doesn't come around that often. You understand? So if you have an opportunity to make and build wealth now, focus more on building wealth versus buying that crap. Because that stuff is just, it, it, it doesn't do anything other than make you feel good, right? They're not investments. But if you invest properly now, you can later buy whatever the hell you want because you bought right. You invested correctly. You build your wealth. You have a different outlook on everything. You build your business correctly. You build your, your everything. So then when the market shifts, you just reaping the rewards at that point, you yeah. know? So, so I think like that was my advice to him. Um, and always guys comment in the chat, put your questions, whatever it is that you, you want to learn or hear about or any questions or concerns. Um, we, we love you guys participating. Um, now shift gears a little bit. I wanted to talk about another strategy that I think is going to be popular is short sales. So I think, as we start seeing a rise in foreclosures and everything, we've come across properties now that are already starting to hit that level of they need to be short sale because they need way too much work and they're, they owe too much money. The payoffs are just too high. So let's break down what is a short sale. Like what is that short sale process? Uh, I mean, a short sale is literally that. So you're selling the loan short. So you're trying to sell a house. It's worth... $200,000 and you owe and say you bought something in the last year or two and you fall behind and you can't afford that house anymore and you try to go sell it and you can't uh, because now the houses or say you bought it for 200, uh, 200 and now prices have fallen down to 190 and you still owe 180 against the house. Mm-hmm. You can't sell it for that. Like you, The sales costs on average are 10%. So take Twenty thousand off of that one ninety price, or nineteen thousand off of that. That's one seventy, one seventy one, and you owe one hundred eighty thousand dollars, meaning you owe more than what you could sell the house for. So what you do is you submit to the bank, and it's it's a process, and it's a it's a lengthy process, just like getting an application for mortgage. You do have to qualify, and the bank has to prove you for a short sale that you literally can't afford this house. You can't do this to say like I want to sell my house, but I got a couple hundred thousand dollars sitting in the bank. I just want to I just want to screw the bank, or I, I want to get out of this house. I can't. Like the bank's not going to let you do that. You have to qualify 
and verify you have a financial hardship and you need to sell this house and you can't afford it, otherwise it's going to cause more pain. The bank will then approve you for the short sale and they will sell the loan short. So basically you have to have an offer. An offer comes in. It says like you say like 160, 170. And with the realtor fees, closing costs, they regulate the whole thing and they understand the whole process and they will approve that offer for that 170,000, even though you owe 180 and pay the, every, all the commissions in the middle and they sell the loan short for that $10,000 difference. So that's the gist of a, of a short sale. It's literally like, I can't afford this house in any way, shape or form. It's going to fall into foreclosure. We sell the loan short and avoid the foreclosure and let somebody else buy it. Right. So now as an investor, where can you take, uh, where you can seize the opportunity here is you first, you need a motivated seller because, like you said, the process is not simple. No, and not at and all. it involves the seller doing everything. Like we can't do anything for them. And we you can know? assist, but it's really it's like you got to provide your tax returns. You got to provide yeah. your your documents. You got to provide. You got to write everything the hardship to the letter. You got to do all the process. Yeah. So you need a motivated seller. But where the advantage comes in is that once the short sale is approved, you can, as an investor, submit an offer. Yep. And we got a deal like that. That was a hell of a deal for us. That remember that they needed to sell. You for can't, like, but also to clarify, you can't be the person because it has to be listed on the MLS. Yeah, you can't be the person listing the house and submitting the offer. Right, that was a big That's thing a back point. in the two thousand six, yep. seven, and eight, nine, ten. They were doing that. Like investors were, especially agent. If they had the license, they'd submit. Be the licensed agent, plus be the one buying the house, and then resell the short sale after that. And the banks caught on that they were losing out on a bunch of money and says, no, 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 no. It needs to go on the active MLS. It needs to be on uh, and get a retail market. So there needs to be that arm's length agreement. Yeah. So you have to have somebody else process a short sale, and you have to be the one to put in the offer on that. Now, there's nothing to say you can't be that first person right away. They listen on the MLS. You submit an offer, and it goes option, active option pending at that point. But the bank doesn't have to accept your offer. Don't think you're going to say a house is worth two hundred thousand and you submit an offer at a hundred thousand dollars. Like those aren't going to happen. The bank's not going to. They're going to get what's called a, a BPO, a broker's price opinion. Somebody's going to go by and they might even get a full appraisal because we've had that done before too, mm-hmm. where they go in and do a full appraisal for the entire property and they get an appraisal and this says this house in today's market is worth one hundred seventy thousand dollars. They owe two hundred. You're offering a hundred. The bank's going to be like, nope, we need a hundred seventy thousand dollar offer. And so, and there's no really negotiating that piece either. Like once they have that offer, you can't go back in there and uh, really say, well, no, it's worth a hundred. Like it, that doesn't work. So or that, or a, it can go the other way. What happened with us where we came across a seller that they needed 85 to pay off the house and that, that house was just all kinds of jacked up. So they went through the short sale process. And when it was time to submit the offer, we submitted an offer at 30 grand to see what the bank was going to come back at. And we were, I think, okay at paying like close to like 60. And the bank came back with a counter at what, 34, 35? 35. So as soon as the bank came back with that counter and we were okay at 60, I mean, that was a hell of a deal that we picked up, you know? And we we just cleaned it up, put it on the MLS and and sold it to an investor, you know? And and we made some really good money on that deal. So you're going to see, I think, and... What we did see recently, too, is because the market was so hot, banks weren't willing to accept those low offers for the properties because they knew the market was hot. Yeah, they didn't have any inventory on their books. They didn't exactly. need to get rid of it. 
So, but now when we start seeing more foreclosures hit the market, more banks dealing with foreclosures, we're going to start seeing banks willing to negotiate even further. They're going to will- be willing to do those kind of deals. Yeah. And you as an investor, like to your point, you can't be the agent and the investor. You got to, you know, pick your battle there. I would always want to be the investor. I'd rather refer it out to an agent that can yeah, do it. Yeah, because the banks regulate like what people can make on those. And it might not be your full 3%. They'll just be like, nope, we're only going to pay 2% on this. And it's like, well, if you want the deal to go through, you've got to take it at that point. There's real no, you're negotiating with the bank. The bank doesn't care. And and there are companies that they specialize in doing and doing a short sell for you. So in Texas, we use a company, uh, Oyes. Um, I don't know what the full name is or uh, Oyes Realty. And I mean, I haven't used them for shit probably a couple of years yeah. just for the fact that like in 20 starting 2020 is like any good there's nobody sale. short sale so I'm, I'm hoping that i mean i haven't talked to him in a while and if not then you you find yourself an agent that understands knows how to do short sales and work with them partner with them because you will come across these you know it, we've just started doing foreclosure marketing we've come qu- across quite a few of them that are perfect for short sales the problem was the sellers weren't motivated like they were still in so much denial. They, you know, they they gave us that that dumb answer of like, you know, I want to see the bank come and take it. Like, they will. Yeah, that's <laughs> like I do. I do remember several people like that that are just like, oh, the bank doesn't take it. I've been, I've been in foreclosure for the past four years, and, and they haven't come and got it yet. It's like, no, you just got lucky with like the pandemic of allowing you to stay in that the bank's not enforcing it because they'll, they'll work with they you they weren't the first, allowed to foreclose in the last yeah, couple of years yeah. they, they'll, they'll work with you for a little bit but now that the banks are starting to get more regulated interest rates are tightening up they need oh, to yeah. get up uh, and they're regulated too on the amount of properties bad loans they can have in their books so they're gonna like that's why i'm starting i was shocked when i first saw that one for six months uh foreclosed like whoo wells fargo's starting to foreclose in six months like damn yeah no it, it's been a shocker i wanted to pivot a little bit you brought up loans, and I recently heard an, uh, a podcast from Ken McElroy. He's uh, one of the Rich Dad advisors, and he's big on multifamily investing. And one of the things that he brought up is how multifamily investors are going to like lose their ass in the coming years because of loans and how everything is structured and how a lot of these people got into syndicating deals that they don't have the money to fund. So banks right now, he was saying that they're starting to require you to have, they're, they're starting to require that the loan be 50% or less. You, you're not getting any higher loans anymore. They're starting to require for you to have more than like six months in reserves to take care of that. And he's like, a lot of the syndicators that we've come across, they don't have those kind of reserves. They don't have those levels. And then you're, you got to get an adjustable mortgage while you're buying it and doing the work that you need to to get the values up before you get that fixed mortgage. The problem is that by the time you get that fixed mortgage, if interest rates rise again, he's like, you're probably negative cash flow on that property. Your cap rate went to shit on it. And if you were trying to sell at these higher interest rates, your cap rates need to come down because people are not going to pay those prices because they're not able to cash flow at lower interest rates. Their cap interest rate rates went up. up. Cap rate, your cap rate needs to go up. Right. It needs to go up. You need to sell at a higher cap rate. So yeah. I'm saying it goes down as far as like where you were trying to sell. Yeah. So basically if you syndicated yeah. with a construction loan or a bridge loan for two years, that's a floating rate while you get your rates up right. or your, your rents up and do your renovations to get into your perm loan. 
It's like, and then the rates increase, or I mean, the rates might not increase, but the terms decrease in your favor. Yeah. In the sense, like, hey, you're not getting 65% LTV anymore with uh, three months of reserves. No, we want higher reserves and we want lower LTVs. Yeah. And it's like, well, now that's a lot more cash that you have to come up with to renovate that property or to get into a permanent loan. And then you got a bridge loan coming up in two years that's like, oh my God, like, I need to get out of this loan because, like, commercial space, like, you don't have 30-year fixed-rate mortgages like you no. do in single family. You might get five-year or 10-year fixed, but it's only for over 20-year amortization, 25-year amortization. You don't have 30 fixed-year fixed rates. Yep. So that's something that uh, can get a lot of syndicators. So one you know, of the things that he does trouble. is they actually get um, – Man, I forgot what they call it, but I think it's like cap insurance, cap rate insurance, interest rate insurance. Yeah, yeah. so they they they've been doing that on all the properties because they like they said they're like and they're good through like twenty twenty four right now because he's like we don't know what's gonna happen. The Fed says they're gonna decrease raising rates, but if they start and all of a sudden the economy goes to shit again, they're gonna have to do something about it. You know what I mean? So it's like. They, they don't know what could happen. Our interest rate's going to keep going up. So you want to do that as a sound investment and just be you know cautious with how you do it. And, and some of the people that we've been seeing syndicate deals, we know they're not doing it that way. They've just been capitalizing on this crazy hot market and easy money. Oh, and it's and, like everybody like having money, wanting to invest it into yeah. something. It's like, oh, I'm just going to go raise money from everybody. And like, I mean, you're buying like 200 unit apartments and stuff like that. It, your down payments like shit you got to come up with like seven eight nine ten million dollars oh yeah and if your minimum raise is 75 grand it's like damn you got to come with a hundred people yeah and then as a, as a general partner and everything you got to make sure that you're having at least six months of uh expenses already set aside and like and rates are uh, uh rents are stabilizing and yeah. they're not going up or they're starting to see rents starting to weaken in the appreciation rates for apartment complexes yep uh, and it's like, that's not good too, where if you're so, saying like, Hey, and like the amount of multifamily permits that are being pulled yeah. are nuts. So those things aren't online yet, but in the next year, two, oh, three years, uh, especially with, um, supply chains of like lumber and labor starting to decrease, mm -hmm. I was like, you're going to have a lot of new inventory coming on and they're going to be able to build at a cheaper price than what they thought six months ago when they started pulling these permits. Yep. So that's, those are going to come online. And yeah. That's and gonna we're drive. not going to see rents tank because there's the rents still need to catch up. So I don't think we're going to see rents tank at any point. Like to your point, you're going to start seeing them stabilize a little bit. Maybe they're not going to go up as fast as they've been going up. But they're not gonna I, tank. I don't know if you if you put that much inventory on the line online at one time, like they. But there's like, demand. People can't afford housing right now. Like there's that, a lot of people that can't afford. They can afford a rent, but they can't afford. Well, that's to what buy. I say. But if it outs if it outstrips supply. Well, yeah, of course. As I say, like, course, like yeah, dude, when yeah, I'm seeing yeah. a thousand percent increases year over year of permits being pulled for multifamily, big developments too. Like I've been driving yeah. around town and I'm seeing these developments. You're talking about three, four hundred units. That they're building per area, I'm like Jesus. Like this isn't a small little yeah. complex, but I think over the coming years, that's gonna create great opportunity to get into multifamily because those are the times that we've been waiting for to get into it. Is you're gonna start seeing these other operators start losing their ass, and they're gonna need to sell because they can't make those deals work anymore. So they're gonna have to sell at losses. They're gonna have to sell at discount because they gotta just at some point they're gonna have to stop the bleeding. Yeah. You know, so I think over the coming years, multifamily is going to be a great space to get into if 
things continue this way and the econ economy continues as choppy as it's been, because syndication is not going to be as easy as it was. They're not going to be able to raise the money. They're not going to be able to compete at those levels. So I think all these, all this noise that we've been seeing in multifamily from all these new investors, we're going to start seeing that die down. And then all of a sudden, it's like, well, now the sophisticated buyers are in the market and they want good deals. Mm -hmm. They're not willing to pay all this bullshit that they pay. And they're like, oh, don't worry. Yeah, we're overpaying, but we're going to raise the rents $300 per unit. It's like, how do you know you are? It's like the number looks good on spreadsheets. <laughs> yeah, you can make it look nice on spreadsheets, but it's like right now you're underwater, though. Yeah. I mean, when you syndicate and you do in, in like multifamily deals, it's like... You're not investing in the deal. You're investing in the person's ability to operate that deal. At least you should be. Well, yeah. Well, no, that's what you are doing. You might not think you're doing it. It's like, yeah, no, yeah. Like, okay, you're, not, yeah, you're, yeah, you're yeah. investing in that yeah. person's ability to do what they say. Because like, I can give you a, a performa and make it look beautiful. Of course. It's like, oh, 15% returns. Like, yeah, those are just numbers on spreadsheets. Yeah. It's like, what's their tracker in their ability to be able to do that? And how long have they been doing that? If they've only been doing it the last two years, it'd be like, yeah, I'm going to watch you go through the next two. Mm -hmm. Before I start really throwing this, this big money in um, and really looking at that person, like how much, how fast have they grown? Yeah. Like, do they have the systems and processes and like been through the lessons learned to make all that stuff work? So, so there you have it, guys. Um, you have any other topics, things that you wanted to hit? Nope, that's it. That's it. So you heard it there from John Barr. That is it. Um, <laughs> yep, we're done. Later. We're click. done. Um, I'm out. Mike I'm drop. really hope uh, you guys enjoyed it. You enjoyed all the information we've been sharing with you guys. Uh, stay tuned to us. Uh, we're always putting out the stuff that's happening right now. That's working for us right now in this market strategies. We're doing, we do this weekly videos on our YouTube channel. We have follow us on social media. We're always putting out information for you guys. And if you want to, you know, have direct contact with us as far as asking us questions and stuff like that. You can always text us at YouTube at 210-794-98. Just text the word YouTube um, and ask us whatever questions you want. You know, whatever you need, whatever you need help with. Um, we're, we're here to help you guys out. We want to make sure that you have the education, the tools, the knowledge. There's no excuse why you should struggle in the coming economy. There's really no excuse other than you're choosing to struggle. You know, and I hope you're not. I hope if you're listening to the show, it's because you're somebody that doesn't choose to struggle and you're choosing to take responsibility and ownership of your own life and make the right moves. And the right moves is to educating yourself and to invest in yourself and your mental health and your education and your knowledge and not to be sitting on the sideline. Don't be a spectator during this market. So thank you all for, for watching, for following us. Give us a thumbs up, share it. Uh, all that love helps us out tremendously. So, and keep in mind that we also have a podcast where you, if you can't watch the videos, we do every video in audio format. So check out your favorite podcast app where we're on it. So make sure to check those out. So with that being said, thank you all for watching and we will catch you all on the next episode.